most pieces of software that are open sourced by large companies are terrible. Some of them are good. Most of them are recruiting tools. It's not that they're bad pieces of software per se. They might be like beautiful pieces of software, right? But they might require a team of people to maintain, or they might require reading this extraordinary you know, set of docs, if you're lucky, if they were documented, or they might solve a problem that only exists due to the confluence of other technologies that are used at one of these big companies, but they never solve the problems of like the average business in the world. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. I'm here with Jeremiah Lowen, who is the creator of Prefect. And rather than have myself describe Prefect, I'd rather hear it from Jeremiah. Sure. Thanks, Eric. It's, it's great to be here. That's always the, the most challenging thing, right, is trying to sum up what a framework does. But at its core, Prefect is a tool for workflow orchestration, for making sure that the components of how you work with data and how you build applications around data do the things you want them to do and the way you want them to be done. Uh, so we are a, a tool for defining you know, the flow of data through a system and ensuring that it gets where it's supposed to be. Great. And then we want to spend most of our time in the story behind Prefect, which I feel like is just kind of the story of you, Jeremiah, to a degree. Yeah, I, I don't think it's entirely me. I think maybe I was there for the initial spark of it. But right. in all honesty, Fair. a lot of the yeah, a lot of the hard work and a lot of the success is owed to the team that we've brought together uh, since those early days. But there's there's some piece of that that maybe it's interesting to go back and explore, which is like why build this thing? And more importantly, maybe what problem does it solve? And I think, like, this is just me talking, right? But the thing that's most interesting to me is that this is a problem that is extraordinarily obvious to literally anybody who's ever worked with data. Like, they know this problem, they know the frustration that we're describing. And this is a problem that has been attempted to be solved for not just years, but decades in various forms. And all the solutions are terrible. And I think one of the reasons they're all terrible is they're all designed for one thing and then attempted to be ported to a second thing. And yeah. that's just not the way this works. So this is such a fascinating thing because it's not hidden, it's not small, but it has for really decades defied any attempt at well solving it. <laughs> like just yeah. to be blunt. Like like it just all the all the solutions suck. <laughs> and so uh, it's quite something to put something in the world and find this incredible response to it and this this excitement and like literal happiness from the people who use our software that it's solving their problem. And and maybe we're getting our, ahead of ourselves a bit, but part of the reason there's so many attempts at solutions is because we, p people had to do something. And and so everyone came up with a solution. Uh, and, and, and to your point, others picked it up and, and probably took it to places they never expected it to go. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely correct. And actually, we, we can go a step further. Um, another reason is that this is a problem that feels easy. So let's talk about one, like one example of that, right? When you put code into the world and you want it to do something, frequently it doesn't do that thing. It fails. And it doesn't matter why it failed. It failed. And so the first thing that you'll do is you'll add some form of a retry, right? Uh, if uh, no request is received, if, the, if some success criteria is met, whatever it is, run my code again. And you'll just do that. You'll, you'll do that as an engineer. It's practically trivial to introduce a retry to your own code. 
The moment that you've done that, you have crossed the line from writing code that we would call positive code in, in the prefect like vocabulary to code that is negative code. You've started writing code that's defensive, that's making sure something happens. And therefore, whether you like it or not, you've begun writing a workflow orchestrator. And so you can imagine that very few people who encounter this class of problem ever turn and start looking for a third-party solution to it. They'll always start by writing their own code. And if you look at, for example, we, we know how people arrive in the prefect universe, and more than half of them come from homegrown tools. And that's for this reason. There is not an engineer in the world who's encountered what we call a negative engineering problem and not tried to solve it themselves at first before they go looking for another solution. And that is how you have this proliferation of tools in our space, in our orchestration space. They all come from usually an engineer and he or she looked at some problem that they were solving and decided, you know what, I can solve this. And by the way, my solution should be used by other people too. And for any number of reasons, it's not quite the way that other people think about the problem. And therefore, we have another checkbox in the list of tools that have been introduced to solve workflow orchestration and you know, another failure in the list of tools that attempt to solve workflow orchestration. And that misperception that this is a trivial problem is why we have this you know, explosion of interest, this universal agreement that this is a problem with very few uh, truly universal tools. Yeah, and you're speaking like the enlightened one who's been through all of these stages. Like you were the, you did the retries. You probably built your own tool. You tried all the other tools. Maybe tell us what was the problem you kind of faced or what was the point you reached where you knew you had to to do prefect? Sure. I mean, look, there's a little bit of like a ridiculousness into what I'm saying, right? I'm saying to you, everyone has pointed this problem, been like, I can build a good tool. And of course, I, I am doing that. I am saying that. And so what right do I have to say that I have the best one? It's a good question. And, you know, we, we can talk about sort of where Prefect came from. I think we, we will uh, in a moment. But a big piece of that is Prefect was never written for anybody but me. Prefect was never designed to be a company. It was never supposed to be open source. Prefect is literally a tool that I built to solve problems that I had, which happened, and I think this is the interesting thing, which happened to be across an extraordinarily large number of disjoint domains. And therefore, you know, that, that may be the key insight, maybe. But there was never a piece of this which was like, we're going to open source this or we're going to build a company on this. This was a selfish tool at the beginning. And then it was when people tried to buy it that, you know, light bulb goes off and, hey, maybe we should get this out into the world. So I, I, I don't know. I, I think that we sh I should at least acknowledge the sort of uh, <laughs> the hubris one could accuse me of having <laughs> for, for leading with this introduction and then being one of the same people I'm, I'm laughing at. You built this to solve your own problem. And I mean, I don't know whether to start with the problems you had to solve in order to build this or the, the moment when you're like, it's time this becomes more than just my own project or my soul kind of, yeah, my own thing. It's a great question. So uh, let's let's dive in. I'll, t I'll tell you the story and uh, we'll see where, where that happens. Um, as you may know, or as some of your listeners may know, so I'm a PMC of a very popular piece of software called Apache Airflow, which also solves the problems that I am describing here. It is used to orchestrate workflows. And it was one of the first tools that I think in a really effective way introduced the idea of orchestration as code or workflows as code, right? You write Python code, it's translated into a DAG and put it into the world for executions. It's a very cool idea and a very effective idea. Uh, and, and in Airflow, at least implemented in a very, very simple way, which on the one hand has allowed an extraordinary number of use cases to be mapped onto that simple interface. 
And on the other hand, makes the tool, in my opinion, unsatisfactory for any one use case. Right? It's just not, can't do enough. It does a lot of things, but it doesn't do enough of them well. But I spent a number of years building Airflow. I'm extremely proud of the work we did there. And as a consequence of that, I got exposure to thousands of data engineers and more importantly, uh, their complaints, their problems, the emails that they would send to our support list, for example, and the issues they would open on GitHub. Uh, like, you know, when, when you are an author, one of many authors, of an incredibly popular tool and you are inundated by what people hate about it and what they're trying to do with it, you learn a lot. And I attempted to turn those lessons into constructive actions in the Airflow world. I introduced something called XCOMs once upon a time for moving data around. I, I introduced uh, attempt at a Dask integration, which has been abandoned, I understand. I introduced proposals to run things off schedule. There was all this stuff. I had one of the first like concrete Airflow 2.0 proposals four years ago. Airflow 2.0 is very famously not out, and I wouldn't expect it anytime soon if I were you. I attempted to make these changes, and in many cases, they were shot down. And I say that with enormous respect for the other folks on the PMC. Uh, I came from a very different place from many of them. I am a data scientist by background. I'm a machine learning researcher by background. And most of the folks on the PMC are not data scientists, they're data engineers. And our understanding of the use case that we should optimize for was therefore somewhat different. And, and I think that that's, a, that's an important facet. And, and, and many of those folks are ha, have been and, and continue to be great friends. A number of them are investors and advisors in, in Prefect now. Uh, and it's been a lot of fun to continue working with them as their you know, careers and objectives have expanded and their needs for workflow orchestration have expanded as well. But this was, this was sort of where we were at loggerheads. I wanted to do things that I couldn't convince the rest of the PMC were important for this tool, which was viewed as primarily like a slow-moving batch on-schedule data engineering orchestrator. And I lived in a very different world. Yeah, I think I'm hearing from you that you're not necessarily being critical of anyone as much as you are pointing out that projects can reach a point where they have to satisfy two masters. And that's a tricky thing to navigate. It is. People ask us all the time, like, when will Prefect kill Airflow? I'm like, we don't have to kill Airflow. I love Airflow. I don't kill Airflow. Airflow is a great tool if you're doing the things that Airflow is good at. And if you're not doing those things, you shouldn't be using Airflow. I, one of the early things that we put up when we first introduced Prefect is we put up a comparison of writing some code in, in Airflow and writing that same code in Prefect. And I got this very odd, uh, I thought odd, criticism of the comparison. People said we had cherry-picked something Airflow was bad at. And I was so confused by that because I wasn't trying to replace Airflow. I was trying to build something that attacked the same problems that Airflow suffered at, that Airflow couldn't attack. And so, of course, our comparison was something that was hard to do in Airflow, right? That the Airflow was bad at. Um, but it was so interesting to me that Airflow was viewed as such a general tool, even though, you know, to me, it was so obvious that it isn't, that we received criticism for that. And we took that down. And, and after uh, months of work, we introduced a blog post called Why Not Airflow, which has been received very, very well and is in all honesty, an extremely balanced view, not about use cases and writing code, but about the choices that were made to build Airflow that we don't think are applicable to a modern data stack. And I, and I think that we um, successfully tapped into the mentality of the crowd that we're trying to reach in presenting a balanced explanation for why we had to do something different, why Airflow is unsatisfactory. 
anyway, to jump back to our story though, I was frustrated. I had things I needed to do that Airflow could not do. I was overseeing risk management for a very large investment firm at the time and had this very broad portfolio and broad mandate. And, you know, every day I needed to do things ranging from as simple as sending out, you know, emails and risk reports and backtesting potentially tens of thousands of trades for a quant fund that I was overseeing. And this diversity of activity demanded a workflow system that could keep up with it. And one of the more interesting things that I kept hearing when I would make basically these complaints about Airflow's inability to handle it to the rest of the PMCs is, you know, some of them ran data for some of the largest companies in the world. And they would say to me, well, Airflow works for us. How can it not work for you? It doesn't make any sense. What do you mean it doesn't scale? Of course it scales. We run out these giant companies. And I would point out, yeah, but you have like 50 people whose only job is to run Airflow. And I have me. And my job is not to run Airflow. I actually don't want to think about this at all. And... I, this sounds crazy in retrospect, I convinced my boss to officially allow me to spend my time building myself a workflow system because I used Airflow to show him that in the right domain, a workflow system can be incredibly powerful and drive value and save time. And I said, I know enough to do this to like add value to my own job, but I need a data science first workflow system. And with your permission, I'd like to spend my time building it. He said, go for it. So I, for months, took everything I knew about Airflow that made it great, stripped out all the things I hated, which turned out to be all of it. We had to start over from scratch and ended up with what would later become Prefect. And then this light bulb moment happened when a whole bunch of firms that I work with came to me almost by coincidence in the space of a couple of weeks with some workflow-related problems. And they asked me for advice. They just knew, you know, I'm plugged into this world on PMC of Airflow, et cetera. And they were trying to understand how to solve these problems in Airflow. And I said, you know, you really can't, but I have this little thing that I've been running my, my own workflows on. Why don't you take a look? And I, I gave it to them and they came back. This is like a, a head of data science and a head of engineering, a couple large companies. And they said, you know, this is great. If this was a product, we'd probably be interested in deploying it. And I said, huh. And. I went to my boss and I said, you know, this thing I've been working on, I got people who want to buy it. Can I sell it to them? And he said, sure, but why don't you figure out what that means exactly? Like literally, what does it mean to sell this? And I said, oh, you know, I, I really don't know. And so I got on the phone with, I did about 50 phone calls and I started paper selling a product. And I, I mean that like very literally, I would ask people what their data problem was. I learned very quickly, you never tell people what your solution is. That's a ter- no one will ever agree that you have solved the problem that they haven't told you about yet. That's a terrible way to pitch a product. Instead, I would ask people what their problem was, their number one most frustrating data problem. And they would tell me, and I would ask them if I could do the following things, would that solve your problem? And they would say yes or no. And if they said yes, I would hold up this little piece of paper where I'd written down, I think, eight features. And I would say, great, so that's numbers one, three, and you know, seven on my list. And they would say, yes. And I'd say, and if I could deliver these to you, that's a product you'd be interested in? They'd say, yes. And then I, I wrote down, I dug this up recently. I think two thirds of those calls ended with someone basically saying, we'll buy this if you build it, of those 50 calls. And so I, I said, great. And I was now armed with people who were interested in the software. I was armed with prototype of the software and I was armed with eight key features that if this software had, I now knew I could solve, you know, let's just say two thirds of the sample of 50 problems that I had just collected. And what was very interesting was that even though the features that would have solved those problems were 
very small in number, only eight, no two people had the same problem. Or if they did, they didn't describe it the same way. And this sort of snowflake aspect of data problems is one of the reasons I think that most attempts to build a unified framework for solving orchestration fail. Because you ask your people with their problems to conform their problems to your framework, and that's very unnatural. So we have a belief at Prefect that the role of the orchestrator is to help you when your code fails. But since nobody wants to write, nobody like anticipates code that's going to fail. Nobody expects that. Every single moment that you ask someone to adapt their workflow to your workflow software is a cost that they are incurring for using your software. And so the more that your software diverges from their expectation or even from how they would express their own problem, the greater the cost you are asking someone to incur to use your software. And I am the sort of person who I've had more than my fair share of PRs to Airflow that introduced like syntactic sugar and like magical things. Like I love when software becomes invisible and does things for me, right? Like to a fault almost. So I was very, very, very into this idea of, okay, I've got 50 different problems and I can basically, you know, applied like a dimensionality reduction to them to end up with eight principal components, if you will, to horribly bastardize this metaphor. I had eight things that if I solved them would explode and actually let me cover the space of data science and data engineering problems. And so armed with all that, we renamed the whole thing Prefect. We set up a company, we transferred the software to it, and we began this process to open source it and build a business. And that's when I accumulated this fabulous team that we have now, and we created these important guidelines for how we operate and the values that are important to us, both in our business and our open source. And fast forward a couple of years and you get to today where we have this really thriving community and this extremely rapidly growing open source product. And this just really, this young, but just like fantastically exploding commercial business as well. You you mentioned something I wanted to go back to in there that on this show, we've talked to several people who come out of big companies and, and we've talked about the merits and values of that. They, they have kind of captive user base. They have cutting edge kind of scale problems that, that sometimes are hard to find. And I think I'm realizing from your discussion here that there's a con to that in that, as you point out, you can solve Facebook or Uber's problem and then you try and kind of push that on the rest of the world. And, and maybe the rest of the world's problems don't quit, fit so well, but you, you can extend things and kind of massage them into the framework. But in your case, you, you didn't have a single kind of perspective at this problem as much as you had a, a heterogeneous one. Yeah, I think that's been a hallmark of my career, to be honest with you. I mean, I've worked for an enormous multi-strat hedge fund. I've been a machine learning consultant with, you know, every every client of mine had a different problem. I've worked for this, you know, diverse uh, portfolio investment firm. The nature of the problems I've had to solve don't just vary from portfolio to portfolio, they've, they've sometimes varied from just day to day within the same domain. And this requirement of being flexible and adaptive has been incredibly important to me. And we do see this. We see this in most pieces of software that are open sourced by large companies are terrible. Some of them are good. Most of them are recruiting tools. And there's a good reason for that. It's not that they're bad pieces of software per se. They might be like beautiful pieces of software. 
right? But they might require a team of people to maintain, or they might require reading this extraordinary you know, set of docs, if you're lucky, if they were documented, or they might solve a problem that only exists due to the confluence of other technologies that are used at one of these big companies, but they never solve the problems of like the average business in the world, which doesn't think about things that way and doesn't have this uh, same reliance on technologies and doesn't have these same intersecting spheres. And I believe that this was true so strongly that when we started Prefect, the company, we explicitly did not target enterprises because we straight up thought, mistakenly, <laughs> as it turns out, that they had solved the problems that we were solving. We believe that they threw money and engineers at this type of problem, built in-house systems, you know, some of which have been open source and you can have a look at them. And we just figured they would have no interest in us with our flexible little package. Now, that all changed, Eric, as you and I have discussed, when one of the largest technology companies in the world showed up and basically just bought, almost sight unseen, our pre-release software because they were so fed up with their internal tools. And <laughs> I remember this team said they had used Airflow in a, in a previous job and straight up refused to use it again. And they literally just came in. Uh, we wrote the login screen of our software so that this team could literally log in to a piece of software they had just purchased access to. And that was another light bulb moment for us, right? We're like, huh, well, this is one of the largest companies in the world, one of the best technology companies in the world. They seem to have a problem that we can solve. That must mean something. Also, this is a company that somewhat famously is not, not always eager, not an early adopter, let's say. So armed with that knowledge, we figured there must be lots of other companies out there that would be interested in our software and are of similar size. And we very much changed what we were doing. And without abandoning the small, medium businesses and individuals that we had spent a lot of time curating, we decided, let's do both. Why not? Our software seems to solve the needs of both large companies and small companies. There's no marginal cost to us of pursuing them other than time. And that's, you know, a, a talented salesperson can evaluate that uh, ROI on their time very well. Let's go figure this out. Let's, let's see if we can do both. And that has been for the last about 12 months, probably has been an important part of the story of how we've built this. We, we can serve an open source customer, a relatively inexpensive customer, all the way up to some of the largest companies in the world. Same product, same platform, same eight things that solve this sort of incredible array of data application frustrations. One of the things I'm starting to believe is that an open source project is, of course, more than just the project, this community. And, and good communities develop their own kind of vocabulary and almost cult way of viewing the world. And uh, you, you've mentioned several things in this podcast I want to come back to. So one, one was this blog post that seems to have made some waves about, you know, why Airflow or why Prefect. And then the other are, are these ways you talk about problems like negative engineering. And, and I feel like that speaks to people it identifies you as a group, identifies people within the group. Like we all share this same concern and it's, it's as unifying as it is the solution. Like you, you present a solution, but you also present it like a way for thinking about and talking about the problem. Yeah. This has been a really important thing, especially for me, because I am, I wasn't joking when we started this off and he asked me like, what do y'all do? And I was like, well, that's the hardest thing. I, first of all, I ramble a lot as is probably evident to anyone who's still listening to us, but also I, 
it can be it can be hard to say in one sentence something that ties all of this together. And so we really experimented a lot in the beginning with how we communicate this problem. And of course, remember one of the early learnings was we don't tell people what our solution is. And we certainly don't tell them what their problem is. We need them to volunteer their problem to us in a way that they can then see that our solution maps onto. That's the only way that this works uh, efficiently. And so negative engineering was the product of days, maybe more, like, like a long time of trying different ways to communicate this problem qualitatively, not, not specifically. And the reason we call it negative engineering is honestly because negative engineering is the word that we started using that literally everyone who heard it started nodding and was like, yes, we have that problem. Didn't matter if they were an engineer or a manager or a CEO or it doesn't matter who they are. Negative engineering is a thing where obviously anybody who hears that they have something negative will start nodding and be like, yes, we need to get rid of the negative thing. But, but beyond that, once we explain that negative engineering is this need to write this defensive sort of cruft that is orthogonal to a person's purpose, it's not, you know, if I'm hired to do something, I'm very capable. I write positive code. I get my job done. I also spend an enormous amount of time. We, we're finding it to be about 90% of my time writing what we would call this negative engineering code, this, this just frustrating, repetitive, minor stuff I have to do to make sure my the code that I was hired to write actually runs. That is something that resonates with people, even if they've never written a line of code, even if they're just thinking about organizational problems or you know, just 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 problems that exist logistically or operationally within their business. You can find examples of this. And so it's a phrase that really resonated. And when we discovered that, we decided to make it ours and and we made our company's mission to eliminate this negative engineering. Um, there's not a good reason for it. But nonetheless, it is critical and necessary. The career that I, that I referenced earlier, I spent most of it in risk management or overseeing uh, risk management functions. And it's a very similar feeling. Risk is orthogonal in, in, in finance, right? It's orthogonal to the objective, which is, which is returns. People, people have all kinds of crazy beliefs about what you can do with risk management. And the truth is you can't do that much. Once the risk has been encountered, you're sort of done. So the true value of a risk process is the ongoing measurement, understanding, and generation of, let's say, experience and intuition, such that when you encounter the problem, you minimize the time it takes to figure out what steps forward you can take and how to contain it. Prefect is very, very, very similar. By being a genuine partner to our users and minimizing their cost of adopting our software, we can be there you know, come on the ride for them. And then the moment they encounter a problem, we cannot, uh, unfortunately, prevent the problem from taking place in some circumstances, right? Code's going to fail. But what we can do is at that moment, we can suddenly become useful. We can suddenly point them to the log. We can suddenly point them to the task. We can, we can take any semantic cue that they've decided to imbue the system with and like deliver that insight. And so this, this idea of like being a risk manager for code is a philosophy that I've spent, you know, my whole career just thinking about, not, not for code necessarily, but just in general, right? Risk management. And, and that, is, that is where this negative engineering idea comes from. We cannot make the negative engineering truly vanish in the sense that no one will do it. But by bringing like best practices to it, we can condense the amount of time that any individual has to spend worrying about it. And that's really our goal here. 
Yeah, I think that's really powerful to speak. There's a lot of chest thumping about solutions, and I don't know that people always identify and want to cling to those chest thumping about solutions. But when people talk about problems, that it, it unifies folks. And I think you've done a fantastic job there. One of the things that uh, we struggled with in building Airflow, and I think Airflow still struggles with, is Airflow really wants to help people do things, as ridiculous as that sounds, right? Uh, and and because it's because Airflow lacks a strong I don't know, like a hand on the runner, right? There's there's no strong like sponsor of it. It's very much designed by committee. It very much accepts any pretty much anything, uh, any new piece of functionality, whether it you know adheres to some philosophy of how these things are supposed to work or not. And, and as a consequence, it it just becomes spread very 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 uh, thin. Whereas for us, we don't want to get in people's way. We don't really, it's going to sound so crazy to say out loud, but we don't want to do anything for anybody. If you're a machine learning engineer and you're trying to build a certain you know, model, you should use the tools that are great for building that model. We are not going to pretend that we are the best tool for that. But once you have that model, once you have that code written, that's where we want to plug in. And we know that that's our domain. And we are very excited to stay in that domain. Um, and by being able to exercise that opinion, like we, like we turn down feature suggestions that we worry would take us too far into basically competing with great tools that, that, you know, skilled engineers can deploy in the pursuit of whatever they're doing. What we love is when people integrate us with those tools so that we can hand off and then receive back feedback from that tool in a really non-invasive way. And, and so I think that that is, you know, that's where this chest thumping comes in. Everybody wants to solve the problem, but the, but the, the engineer is great at solving them. Let the engineer solve the problem. We just need to be there to support them and make sure that their solution works. <laughs> like, like it's a, it's just such a funny thing to say out loud. I almost feel silly saying it, but it's so core to this negative engineering idea that we are not in somebody's way when they are writing good code. We are only there when they need our help. We are an insurance product. That's how we think about our company. We're an insurance company. And then another topic that, that you alluded to that we could, uh, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on. You mentioned at the beginning that, you know, you didn't set out to make an open source project or a company. Uh, and, but eventually you, you were kind of pulled in these directions and, and the open source vision has kind of unfolded over time. It was, we'll open source this and, and, and with time you realized that there was more to open source help us i'd love to see how you discovered that along the way yeah so we have this saying there's a difference between what we make and what we sell for all companies there's a difference between what you make and what you sell right for us in particular as an open source company we make workflow software if we sold workflow software then we would compete with ourselves as an open source company i would argue and eric you, you probably are like in a better seat than me to like decide whether this is a true statement or not but i believe that like many open source companies or open core companies that fail are companies that never really figure this out. And they think that the code that they put into the world is also the thing that they sell. And maybe it's a just a managed version of that code, which, which I think is a ridiculously terrible business model. Or maybe it's like you pay us and we unlock more features of that code. And in all, in all cases, you're sort of competing with yourself. Right. You, you're giving something away, but you also are selling that same thing. And in the early days of Prefect, we decided to give away the tools that our users needed 
to build their workflows, so the, the core engine, really. And we have this whole thing we haven't really talked about with this hybrid setup where every single one of our users is basically an on-prem deploy, but we manage all the infrastructure and it's very cool how it works and you know keeps costs down and keeps privacy high and it's, it's really great. But as a consequence of that, we had to make sure that we could deliver the entire engine to our users. And so that was the thing we open sourced. We open sourced this workflow engine. And then it became so popular and people started expecting a much more full suite of workflow tools. And this was a bit weird for us because on the one hand, we had a free version of that, but on the other hand, it was proprietary code that we supplied as piece of SaaS software. And it was actually when COVID kind of settled in back in March. And at the time, we didn't really know that we'd be in the situation we're in now as we record this, what, in early September. But back then, it just seemed like this event that just had just come through and just decimated so many of the things that we took for granted. And so we made this decision. Well, to be honest, we didn't just make this decision. I sort of came up with this, a new set of assumptions about how the world would work and how the world of software would work. And some of those assumptions were quite scary, right? They involved things like nobody wants to buy software right now, but people are going to be desperate for open source software. But open source development is going to stagnate because most open source maintainers are just volunteers. And this is certainly not a priority for them now. There's just a list of things I came up with. And as we looked at this list, we said, well, the obvious strategic decision here is that we should open source what had formerly been our proprietary platform. And the reason we should do that is that people could really benefit from it. And we always say we are trying to deliver value to people. We're not trying to extract value from them. We are trying to deliver. We're trying to solve a problem that they have. And here's an opportunity where... Uh, we can take this action and really align ourselves with people at a moment where they really need, at least in our judgment, they really need something like this. And so we just believe that the appetite for our platform was much higher in that moment than it had ever been before. One thing that we had uh, struggled with, if I'm completely honest with you, is that we save companies money. It's a weird thing to say we struggled with. Why do I say that? Because companies in 2019 were a lot more excited when we could demonstrate how we would make them money or like, you know, something more top line correlated. But it's really, really easy for us to show how we can save you, you know, six figures. All of a sudden in March of 2020, that changed. Companies became incredibly interested in anything that could save them money. And so even though we made all these assumptions and just made these strategic decisions and decided to open source our software, our commercial inbound went through the roof. Because we're sitting there saying, we can save you lots of money and you'll keep using your same code and cost nothing to implement us and you can do a POC in a few hours. And so all of a sudden, we were in this bizarre situation of our open source took off and so did our sort of sales. And what we decided to do, therefore, is not undo our decision. We decided to lean into it because clearly we had found a way to make something workflow software and sell something of an insurance product built on top of that software that was resonating in a non-competitive way. We had these two great balanced businesses that were growing. And so a few weeks ago, we relaunched that platform as an open source product and uh, did a lot of the things that frankly, we didn't have time for in March when we were trying to move quickly, uh, created a shared code base, proper open, proper open core, all this other stuff. Um, but the result was again, this incredible like interest and, and most shocking to us was right after we announced this release and we said, yeah, this is our biggest release ever. Prefect was the number one trending repo on GitHub for a few days. And, and the way I can like quantify that is I think one third 
of all of the GitHub stars that have been given to our open source project showed up within the last 30 days, which is an extraordinary, like crazy thing to think about. So our community exploded. And we saw this in our Slack community. We saw this in our free tier users. We saw this in our commercial inbound, uh, as, as well as, of course, in the most visible metric, our GitHub stars. So this has been a very interesting uh, journey of deciding not just what to open source, but how to open source it. What code should we put out in what form with what support guarantees? How do we document it? How do we deliver it? How do we, to be blunt, how do we as a young team, as a lean team, provide the coverage that people expect from such a broad suite of software as the one we're offering? And the answer is we can't in a lot of ways. So like, we have people who they, they try to use our software and they're like, well, why don't you have, for example, uh, I don't know, why don't you support, you know, push button deploy on AWS? And the answer is because we have a very, very small team that is focused on what in our judgment are the most high value pursuits. And that's not something we've had time to do yet. But that's the wonderful thing about building this great open source community is we're now working with folks who are building that. And so while we expend engineering hours to oversee and make sure that that's done in a way that you know complies with our design objectives by getting an excited and motivating uh, motivated community together we can collectively build the product that is most useful even if at any one even if any one piece of it might not be in our company's highest ROI pursuits if we want to be extremely just transactional about it yeah on that point as we kind of wrap up here i'm sure there's people listening to the show that want to be more involved or or just excited about what you're doing Maybe uh, what are the upcoming milestones we should be looking out for? What are the um, maybe things that people can do to, to learn more about the project? So the, the easiest thing is obviously check out our check out our GitHub. It's github.com slash prefecthq slash prefect or just prefect.io if you want to see our uh, our site itself. That's a jumping off point for the code, for our Slack community, for you know GitHub discussions, for getting in touch with us, for just kicking the tires, for signing up for our SaaS is everything can be done from there. But, you know, from a roadmap standpoint, we're rapidly approaching the place where our cloud product, our SaaS product, and its open source version, which we call Prefect Server, is reaching a level where we, you know, I, I think if we're completely honest, someone who signs up for it right now is in some respect an early adopter, just by virtue of like what, what the software looks like. At the end of this quarter, our, our literal product roadmap is to no longer have that be true. And so this, this remaining long tail of features that will satisfy, you know, the 80 percentile needs will be, will be available and present in our, in our platform. And that's very exciting for us. And so the question is, well, what's next? And here's sort of a crazy thing to say, but we've talked today about this data orchestration problem and the fact that we've built Prefect to solve it in like a modern way. But if I can be completely honest, um, it's very amusing to us at Prefect when we get referred to as a next-gen system, because we are not a next-gen system. That's a very honest just assessment. We and many other tools like us are just the latest implementation of this decades-old paradigm. The difference is that we run on modern hardware and we interface with modern software and we do it a lot faster and we do it in a lot more easier way and we're, we scale better and all this other stuff that makes us feel familiar to a modern data scientist. But there's nothing next gen about that. It's just the natural upgrade that frankly, I think Airflow was supposed to take with the 2.0 upgrade, you know, five years ago. 
and for whatever reason has elected not to and just sit there. Um, what we are going to be turning our attention to is we, a few months ago internally, we haven't really publicized this yet, but a few months ago internally, we drew up our new product vision because we made this product vision uh, in 2017 to allow people to run any workflow anytime, anywhere. That was our like governing statement. And at the end of this quarter, we will basically be saying that is that is achieved. People who are using our software are no longer early adopters of this theme. They are this is a real thing that we're putting into the world. So what's next? So basically, our goal is to do to ourselves what we think we have very successfully done to Airflow, which is to look at Airflow, look at where it fails and the use cases it fails at. We identified those eight keywords and we said these are the things we need to do to be compatible with the modern world. So one of the nice things about the relationships we've built uh, with our users and with our customers is that they're not only telling us what problems we're solving today, but they share with us the problems they'd like us to solve in the future. And so very similar to sitting on that Airflow support list and hearing about all the things people were doing and trying to do and learning about this incredible wealth of activity that people were frustrated that Airflow couldn't meet. I know the same list of complaints about Prefect. Again, like, it feels a little bit ridiculous to, to let, on the one hand, be here like, we make great software. And on the other hand, be like, but we don't do everything. But it's true. We don't do everything. There are, there are things that are uh, not really compatible with the way that Prefect exposes vocabulary. But our users very much would like to be. And some of them have even begun hacking that together. And we don't want people to be hacking our system. That's how Airflow got into trouble. We want people to be embracing our system. And we want to deliver that utility. And so uh, in the fourth quarter, we'll be uh, designing a lot of this and 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 probably in 2021 we'll be introducing a lot of new features that are going to they're not going to change how prefect works prefect is going to work exactly the same if you wrote a flow a year and a half ago that that first customer I, I mentioned they deployed flows in I think August of 2019 that are still running today with no change to code and we are like super committed to maintaining that compatibility and we will but there is this a set of problems that is very obvious to our users in the same way that like the problems Prefect solves are very obvious to Airflow users that they can't do with Prefect today. And so we have this entire roadmap about how we're going to solve that. And most of them, to be honest with you, uh, involve like breaking this DAG paradigm that Airflow uh, certainly didn't introduce, but very much popularized to the point that it even called it's what we call a flow. They call the DAG. We don't call it a DAG because that is too inflexible for our uses. And we need to we need to go well beyond that. And we're gonna, to give you a preview of some of the things we're thinking about, we're gonna basically let people break a lot of the rules that today we enforce, we and other tools like us. An example of that would be right now, when you have a task, it's pending, gets scheduled, it runs, it succeeds, it's done. We don't revisit it. There's no concept of a state after a finished state. And maintaining that state hierarchy is super important to us. It's how we have the integrity of our system. But we have a lot of users who it turns out they're using Prefect and Prefect flows to monitor infrastructure. And it's very confounding to them that every time they want to get, you know, if they're using a task state to represent the health of that infrastructure, it's very confounding them to rerun that flow every time. It breaks a semantic understanding they have because their infrastructure's health exists on a continuum, not, you know, in this like batch interval, this check, this ping, this heartbeat. And so one simple example of a thing we'd love to allow such a person to do is let a task go back into a running state and evolve through a number of finished states. It's successful, it's successful, it's successful. An event takes place, it's now failed. The event's resolved, it goes back to being in a success state. 
And that sort of real-time, continual, I'll use streaming to use an extremely loaded word in our universe, um, way of working with the states of things is like heresy in the current DAG-based prefect world. But something that I think you'll be able to see in the in the future from the tools that we support. So that's the sort of stuff that we are getting extremely excited about is this incredible variety of use cases that we know we can't deliver today. But once we check the box on our stable uh, platform in a couple of weeks, that's where we'll be turning our attention. Very exciting. I can totally imagine a persistent state for everything and it's just continuously available as opposed to a thing that cycles through. Very good. We hope that it's as much of like, sounds so stupid to say, but some of our users thought it was like, well, I did at least, revolutionary when you could run something off a schedule because Airflow doesn't allow that, right? You run things on a schedule. So the fact that we could just run your workflow at any time for any reason, like in response to a serverless function or whatever, that was revolutionary. So this to me feels like the same degree of sea change in terms of what use cases we'll be able to support when we go to this like continuous setting. It's going to be very cool. I'm excited. Jeremiah, as, as we wrap up, I, uh, I should also direct people for a good time to your Twitter handle. I just think uh, you're a funny guy. What, I, can I, I can think I that's ask, a terrible idea. <laughs> can, I, can I ask about, uh, I shouldn't, and, and we can edit this out if you want. Tell me about sobbing GIF. What? Oh, this- no, we don't have to edit that out. It's just, it's just uh, embarrassing, I guess. What, or, or I don't even know what it is. Not embarrassing. I'm certainly not embarrassed, but I do it every week. No, I just love this great inside joke that I feel like I'm not quite a part of, but trying to be. I think you are as much a part of it as any of us, including myself or Jim, if I'm completely honest. Uh, <laughs> right. So uh, why did this start? I don't know why this started. Jim, Jim O'Shaughnessy, uh, for those who don't know, is uh, first and foremost a, a legend in the financial industry and someone who I've been fortunate to know for a very long time. And uh, the O'Shaughnessy's, Jim and, and his son Patrick, are uh, great partners of ours at Prefect. And uh, Jim is a master of gifts. If you follow him on Twitter, it's a lot more rewarding experience than following me on Twitter. You, you know that, right? That's his most common response is with a gift. And for some reason, I decided to start tweeting these horrendously bad jokes at him. I don't know why. I, I, well, I do know why. It's a lie. I love puns. I love terrible puns. I just really enjoy them. I like wordplay and, you know, whatever. I, I like it a lot. Uh, and someone sent me a really great joke once. And I was like, I want to tweet this. But this will be a terrible tweet. Like, I at least recognize that. And I was like, but if I could just bring someone in to be like, you know, the, the straight man, basically, to think back to like, you know, I don't know, like Laurel and Hardy or some like stupidly old fashioned like form of comedy. Yeah, exa- exactly. I was like, you know, who can I bring in? Like, whose reputation can I like not quite tarnish, but still bring into this? And so I just picked Jim and uh, used this ridiculous format. And it did surprisingly well at the time. You know, I, I didn't have nearly as many followers as I do today. And I was shocked by this. And so the next week, I did it again with a little bit of a different format. It didn't do so well. I did it the next week with the same format. It did really well. And so every Friday for about two years, I have tweeted this idiotic series of jokes at Jim O'Shaughnessy, who every week responds with how he'd like to murder me. And that is my relationship with Jim O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> now we're all, now we're all in on it. Got it. Now we're in that, and and I and it's in public, and the whole world can join in on this insanity. That uh, every week I apologize, and people people actually write in. They're like, 
you know, they're like, yeah, this week, this week was really good or, or this week wasn't so good. I'm like, no, 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 that's not really the point here. <laughs> just no, no assumption of quality in anything that's happening in this, in this weekly series. Jeremiah, thanks so much. I've loved this chat and you've been a good friend uh, as we've gotten to know each other the last year and, and you're doing an incredible job with this work. We're all excited about it. Well, thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. And I appreciate the invitation to come on. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been wonderful to meet folks like yourselves who just, you know, have this knowledge and this domain expertise that for, for a company that's trying its best to simultaneously do a lot. And as I said, do like nothing as weird as that sounds, being able to share ideas and, and, and get inspiration from folks like you uh, means the world to us. So thank you. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye. Find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. <laughs>